Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. It's a pleasure to have with me today, Michael Kazmarek. Hi, Kaz. Nabil, good to see you. Likewise. Kaz is the VP of Product Management for Newstar Security Solutions Business Unit. He also directs Newstar's research effort around DDoS attacks and DNS trends. Prior to joining Newstar, Kaz spent nearly two decades with VeriSign. Before that, he was a systems engineering manager for Lockheed Martin in charge of their solid rocket motor disposition in Russia program. Kaz holds a bachelor's in aerospace engineering from University of Maryland and a master's in environmental engineering from Johns Hopkins University. So Kaz, why don't we get started? How did you get started with security? That's a funny question. So I came over from Lockheed Martin. I assumed I was probably going to be there for life once I got a job there. But how all things, you know, they always say, what's the Chinese saying? We live in interesting times. They went through a transition. They were moving out and divesting that business unit. And so I hopped over and ended up getting a job at VeriSign because interestingly enough, project management and systems engineering had much similarities. And so jumped over to VeriSign back in 2000, worked my way through the company in various other roles. Back around 2012, they were looking to expand their product suite. And so what got interesting there was they were looking for people who would be willing to make the jump and try on and build out some new products. And so I said, sure, you know what? That seems like a great progression of my career. Let's take that leap. Let's make that uh, next step. And went over to the product side of the house and started building out their recursive DNS products. Built out recursive DNS, built out that service, which then led into a DNS firewall offering. So being able to filter traffic at the DNS layer, which then led into becoming part of the security solutions business unit that was primarily DDoS at the time, which then was DDoS managed DNS. And now it was the recursive side of the house. Then throw on top as we, you know, progressing as people moved in and out, ended up just basically growing from there and really diving into cybersecurity. So it took over all the product, took over marketing, then was in conjunction with our head of sales. We were running the business unit. And basically, that's how we ended up where we are in cybersecurity. That's awesome. And not to sidetrack the conversation too much, but a funny story for our listeners is Kaz, you and I happen to work very closely in the same office complex on Richtop Circle in Sterling, Virginia, where I at least spent 2007 through 2010. I believe we worked right next to each other in adjacent buildings. Yeah, we were in Lakeside 3, so I'm certain that we probably bumped into each other in what we called the conference room O down in O'Fuelans, or we're probably sitting at lunch at Sweetwater. So I'm certain that we saw each other. We just, at the time, didn't know each other. Absolutely. Really fond memories there from my career. I'm sure you as well. So so let's talk a little bit more about the fact that you come from a very strong engineering background. Can you share some insights into how engineering may have helped in your cybersecurity career? 
Sure. I think the, the key thing around engineering is that what it provided with me was like this discipline, this structure on how to solve problems. And when, so when you're doing labs, you're going through and doing work, you're getting problems, you're getting tests, you've got to work your way through the problem to get to the solution. And it's interesting because it's basically everything we do today with respect to product management is finding out what the problem is that needs to be solved, working your way through what the customer pain points are, what their environment looks like, what their situation is, and then coming up with a solution on how to solve it or how best to solve it. So that engineering gave me both the discipline, but also then a little bit more of the structure and the logic on you know something that works for me and the methodology in order to be able to provide customers with solutions. And from my perspective, too, you know, I have I don't have an engineering background. I have a computer science background, but very similar in terms of the, the foundations of what they teach you in, in both those uh, fields. I have, in many cases, struggled to find people who have engineering backgrounds because they're so rigid in how they think that they sometimes struggle to solve problems in the cybersecurity area. But then again, there are also people who can really, really, really use the frameworks and be creative in solving problems that come to them. So what are your thoughts on whether solving problems, is it something that comes naturally to some people versus others that just doesn't come as naturally? Or is it something you think that can also be taught with certain frameworks or certain guidelines that people can use to be able to solve problems? I think it's a, it's a great question. And when you sit there and think about that, I think that everyone has a level of creativity. It varies based off of where it is. So you've got people who go into art who are phenomenal artists from their creativity. You've got people who go into our field in cybersecurity where you get a lot of creative minds who are trying to solve customer problems. I think where the difference comes in is that the methods or the tools that you use to tap into that creativity vary. And so when you're in engineering, that structure, that discipline is one way that hones or, or at least brings that creativity forward for us as engineers when you're solving a problem. You're looking for a challenge, you're handed a challenge. But then when you think about it in other disciplines, it's all a matter of the methods that are posed to them which aligns with their way of thinking, with their mindset. So it's part of also the reason why when I look at my team and I think through, I've got like such a diverse team. And I'll give you a perfect example. You know, we, one of the products that we have is IP geolocation. So we'll go through and map an IP address to its physical location, so to speak. Is it an individual, a company, et cetera, various different data points on the back end. My product manager is a cartographer by formal training. So who better to map the internet than someone who understands that level of discipline on how to map the world? She brings to the table an entirely different view because she thinks down that a different way in the manner in which she was taught in the methodologies around what is important for that that's made that product fantastic. So I think it's all a matter of we all have some inherent level of creativity. It's all, all how it's how do you tap into that creativity and then best give people the tools and be able to grow that and do more of it. That's definitely insightful. I mean, personally, whenever I'm facing a problem, I think I tend to distill it down to the basic, you know, base cases of that need to be solved and then solve the the smaller components of the problem once one you know, little bits at a time until I try to solve the whole problem altogether. You know, it takes me back to when I was learning how to write recursive methods and, and functions to solve certain problems. 
you think of the base case and then you expand on that. That's my way of doing it. I would be curious for, for you, do you have a certain technique or do you have a certain approach that works well for you when you're trying to solve problems? I think it varies. And so at least the one thing that I think that I do well is I can take a step back. So if the problem is posed, I can actually back up a little bit and say, look at the, the 50,000 foot view. What is the scope of the problem? And then break it into the smaller chunks where I know that others you know, tend to dive right in. And they're going to start working the problem and then they'll figure out the long-term path. So for me, it's a matter of taking a step back. And it's the same, you know, when I'm tinkering with things in my house, if I'm going to go through and put in some, some additional things or in the home automation or whatever that may be, where I will take a step back and go, what am I trying to accomplish here? What do I want to get done? And then start working through what, what approach do I want? What different systems or tools do I want to utilize? And how can I break it into chunks that I know now that are bite-sized enough that I can accomplish this task, then grow into the next, then grow into the next, then grow into the next? I know you're really into home automation, and I want to get to that in, in just a second. Uh, but before we get there, I do want to learn from you and talk a little bit about Newstar's recent research where, you know, you guys reported you saw like 154% increase in overall number of DDoS attacks between 2019 and 2020. Curious if you have any thoughts on the types of security trends that leaders need to be aware of or maybe pay attention to today and in the short term future related to DDoS attacks and maybe even around application security. Sure. So last year was an interesting year and COVID, you know, had that impact of, they always say, what is it? Idle hands, right? The devil's workshop, whatever, the, however the saying goes, we saw such a significant increase when you think about we went from 10,000 attacks in 2019 that we had mitigated on the infrastructure to then having mitigated over 25,000 plus attacks in a span of a year and peaking right after COVID and the lockdowns happened. So starting in the March timeframe, this is massive ramp up of attacks. So you get then past the, the COVID peak and you start to see as things start to normalize down, the DDoS attacks really didn't go away. We still saw a significant number of in, in, increase in attacks from the prior, you know, if you went a month by month comparison. And even what's interesting now is even as everybody's going back into work, we still see these attacks continuing, maybe not at the same rate, but definitely ramping at a, at a higher rate than they were last year. What's the most interesting thing, the trend that we found out of all these things is this start of, or this reemergence of ransom related DDoS attacks. These attacks where someone will fire you off a note that says, if you don't pay me my ransom, I'm going to attack your infrastructure. And it's fascinating how many, I mean, these things have been around since the 90s and they just started coming back in vogue probably late last year. And it's funny because we're seeing so many, we know that ransomware is so rampant these days when you hear about things like JBS or the Colonial Pipeline or even the, the ferry up in New England that are getting hit with these ransomware attacks. And you don't even hear about the little ones that are probably going on. But what's shocking for us is the number of emergency mitigations we're going under and customers who are reaching out saying, I've re received a ransom note. We had seven in the last two weeks of ransom notes just being received. So the cyber criminals have definitely found, you know, found some areas where they can extort. And it makes you wonder, okay, well, where are things going to go in the near future or even in the long term? 
And one of the things that I, I see when you rub the crystal ball is you look at things like 5G and you look at how that is going to change the manner in which all devices connect into the world. It's been touted. It's got you know 100x the bandwidth that you had in prior generations. You're going to have devices directly connect to the network. You know, regardless of what you have to do for your cybersecurity protection today, all of that gets amplified from our opinion when in Newstar and as well as my opinion as well, that when you start to add in things like 5G and you start seeing how things are going to change, it's important to know who you're con who's connecting with your infrastructure. Well, if devices are directly connecting to the network, now that becomes even more critically important because they're not behind a firewall, they're not behind a VPN, or they're not behind even a NAT that is being leveraged. So IPv6 is now going to grow more and more. And you're going to start seeing attack shift where you'll start seeing things drive attacks towards personal islands of security, we call it, where you know the individual, you or me, come attack my house because that's where I work from. Or attacks even being launched from you know, smaller devices. If your phone can handle up to two gigs of bandwidth, it only takes about a thousand phones to drive you know, a two terabit attack now. And that's pretty significant when you think about that and the manner in which it could actually have an impact on what you think about from security and why it's going to be so much more important to start understanding who's accessing your systems and how do you manage that going forward. The whole complexity of, you know, getting additional bandwidth in people's hands and having full-fledged computers in your pocket has, has clearly created this whole ecosystem. And it requires a mind shift, clearly, from what I understand. I think you tend to agree there. And you're right. We're seeing more and more and more of these ransomware attacks every single day. It, it seems to be the, the focus these days. Any thoughts on whether if we stop paying these ransoms, if they'll go away? It's, uh, you know, it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, a company needs to make the right business decision that makes sense for them. It's not up to me to say that you should or should not pay because it's hard to sit here and say how your business model is structured. But I'm of the opinion that if you pay you're just putting a target on your back. But in a lot of cases, if you're completely locked out, you've got to look to make what makes sense for you, for your board, for the industry that you're in, for the consumers you're supporting. It's a tough question, I should say. It's one that doesn't have an easy answer. And I know that there's been even comments with respect to the politics around it. You know, should the United States government even, you know, be concerned about this? Should they go after people who pay ransoms? I'm not going to touch that topic. I'm going to leave that to people who are at a higher pay grade than me who are putting those positions to solve. I just think it's a tough decision. When, when I think about ransom DDoS, for us, I say, you know, don't pay. We, we've said this in multiple webinars, even on our own that we put out. And contact your provider, right? Let them know that you've gotten this note. Let them know that you've been given a ransom demand. And let the experts go through and figure out how to keep your infrastructure up. You think about things like ransomware and you think about how when we you go back to Petch or not Petch and the various other ones that were out there what, about five years ago and the some that were DNS related, they were easy ways to start to block and manage those. But now you look, these these guys are pretty good. And it's it's like an organized crime syndicate in the manner in which they're structured. They're breaking in, they're hacking through, and you have to start thinking about, for some of these industries, why it's critically important to expand your cybersecurity presence and your posture. There's a funny story. It's when you could actually go visit people, right, for the COVID lockdown. 
we had met with an oil and gas company. And we're talking with them about DDoS protection, about you know expanding their cybersecurity tool set. And I remember distinctly the guy that we were speaking to said, for $100,000 for what you're asking me to spend to protect my infrastructure, my board will tell me to go drill a new well because the well will bring in revenue. I'm just sunk cost. And I think about that now when I think about what happens with like with JBS as a perfect example or the Colonial Pipeline, where I understand the business decisions that they went through and why and how it got them to where they are. But then I also don't understand how it took an, a disaster to be able to have to change your mindset and your thinking. Now it's mainstream. Now everyone has to make sure they're prepared. And, and that's great. It's a long time coming probably something that could have been avoided in a lot of cases. Yeah, no, no absolutely. Uh, it's it's a, it's a human nature, right? Where we we think we're immune. It couldn't happen to us or won't happen to us until it does. And then there's a focus on how to deal with it. We always say that when we think about DDoS, we, we always make the statement clear up. It's not if you're going to get attacked, it's when you're going to get attacked. And so just be prepared. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you know, now also with the fact that now we've gone through this year, year and a half of the new norm of the pandemic, as people start returning to work, going back to the office or going getting into hybrid models, are there certain security concerns that are worrying you and, and are keeping you up at night? Yeah. Um, what's interesting is when you think about a lot of organizations went from protecting two or three offices and a remote VPN infrastructure to then protecting 100 to 1,000 plus satellite offices where your VPN became your most important you know, component of your systems, as well as then having to figure out how to deal with endpoint protection. Now you're getting into a situation where you have to protect a hybrid environment like you brought up. You've got now offices and people working from home. And even though it says, you, you read the studies that say it's accelerated the way we, were, we do work six years, six to 10 years. So there was an expectation six to 10 years from now, we would be in this type of hybrid environment, work from anywhere, work for any time and get the job done. Well, we're here. And so the things that keep me up are the very fact of some of the statistics you read about the number of open jobs and open positions that are going to be in cybersecurity in the next few years. I think one of the statistics said that by 2023, there will be enough open positions to fill 50 football stadiums. And when I think through that, and I think through the fact that we as cybersecurity professionals have to be right 100% of the time, the attacker only has to be right once. And for that very reason, the things that keep me up are, what are we going to do when these attacks scale, these attacks start to ramp up even more, and we can't fill the roles? Because I don't believe that there's a single tool that's out there that can do everything for you. If somebody says they can do 17 great things, they're doing 17 things, but none of them great. It then becomes a lot of plug and play, and you then end up falling into the marketing, which then sells you on why you should use a product, as opposed to the true reason why you should implement something into your infrastructure. And you start to be concerned about the more of these devices you plug in and the more reliance people become on the hope that the system is doing what it does only opens up more avenues of exposure in a lot of cases because you're plugging something in but not truly understanding how it works or what it does. 
will then expose you to more risk because now are you at current patch levels? Have you tested and verified that that's going to work? Is there an exploit that you haven't read up on and weren't aware of because you couldn't, because you missed it in the mail? And so I think it drives that mindset is going to be going more down the path of a need for more and more further left development, more security being built into the application stack much earlier in the process, as opposed to roll it out and then secure it after the fact. And we're seeing that trend already, right? It went from, you went from a development and operations methodology to a DevOps methodology to now DevSec. And you see that with all, you know, all the free open source tools that are out there, all the various different components that support all that capability. More and more, we've got to drive further left to be able to address some of these security concerns that I think that no one's even thinking of. I mean, and, and there's probably things around the horizon that we're not even prepared for that are going to pop up in the next two years. Yeah. And, you know, you said something that kind of leads me to, to ask about something you mentioned earlier, too which is, you know, we're, we're used to plugging things in without truly understanding how they work sometimes. And this also goes to the fact that, you know, we are security professionals who maybe understand how things work sometimes a little better than the average consumer. So let's talk about home automation and, and some of the work you've done there, because the average Joe probably plugs in home automation devices like their thermostat or their audio controller, et cetera, their video doorbells, and not really understand the implications uh, from a security perspective of the decisions they're making as they configure it and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it kind of brings us back to that whole complexity of interconnectivity and, and really complex systems interacting with each other. But also from the home automation perspective, let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges there. You are quite the home automation enthusiast from, from what I understand. So would love to kind of get your perspective of what goes into your decision-making process as you're deciding what technology to bring into your home, what you want to automate, and also would love to learn about what are some things that you found very useful or valuable as part of this home automation effort. Sure. So I think we, one of the decisions that when uh, going into the home automation was I, I'm not a fan of closed systems. So even you know, when you think about IoT, even today, there's a lot of in, in, in industries, in manufacturing, that there's a lot of in these automation systems, there's a lot around the, this closed, this walled garden that you're in and you're bought in. So I, I'm a firm believer in open source. I'm a firm believer in having the ability to grab the tools I need, make sure they're secure. So when I'm looking for components to fill a gap that I have, I'm going to go with a brand I trust somebody on the back end who I know is liquid, who's got the money to make sure they're putting it into the design of the system, that it's a standards-based, so I'm not grabbing a camera and plugging it into a USB port and then sticking it out and having it manage. So I'll look for those pieces. I'll look for time in the market. So I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not the fast mover. I'm not going to grab the next coolest thing that's out there and like, look at this. I just automated the lights and this switch is awesome. It just came out. Nah, you, I'm going to wait a little bit. I'm probably going to give it a couple months. I'm going to see how it progresses. Same holds true with, you know, all the devices. I'm going to stick with brands that I know and trust. I'm not going to grab probably the cheapest thing that's out there. I won't grab the most expensive. But I'll certainly do my homework when it comes to it. 
And then when it comes to the interconnectivity, I look for things that are going to have, give me an API that I can work through. Something I can send like a curl command or an HTTPS command to. If I want to tweak or make a modification, I can certainly then trigger it. Because then again, it goes back to if I'm looking at a closed system and then I've got to buy another plugin and then I've got to go through and pay somebody to do the plugin. Those things become cost prohibitive over time. But as I mentioned, those are great because then and again, those are going to be pretty secured that are out there. So it all depends on the level of comfort that you have. Me, buddies of mine, we like to play around with it. We like to say, we've gotten it doing this now. We, we have it doing something else during the time of the day. But when you have like the alarm system tied into the controller, you know, blinds tied in. And so, you know, my buddy does the geofencing. I'm like, no, I don't need somebody steals my phone and then walks to my up to, up to my house and it opens up. Yeah, no, 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 that's not happening. Okay, <laughs> I'm not very, I'm not that comfortable yet with that piece. But you know, him on that other end, you know, he's he's more than happy, more than comfortable because it helps him when you know someone's out of the house, everything turned off, it shuts down, it's closed. So there's benefit in one direction versus, in my opinion, too much risk in the other. So that's kind of what I look for. I tend to look for a little bit more established systems in areas of which I know and say that they've been around, their products are tested. I'll go and play with them. I'll firewall them off or, or put them in a, in a separate network for a little bit and check it out and see if I see anything coming out of it. But I'm probably a little bit further than most most users who are out there who are grabbing the, you know, the next camera that's out there or the, uh, you know, throwing in the, the thermostat on the wall. So do you have one favorite home automation component that you've done that you really enjoy, or it could even be something that maybe you use most frequently? What would that be? I'll tell you the one thing that I found is the most valuable are the scene controllers. So a scene is basically a script. What it allows you to do is that you can either say, a scene will say at a time of day, do X, or if I press this button, do Y. And the beauty is my scene controllers are probably some of the most valuable devices in my house because if I have them in the bedrooms, I have them in certain places in the house. And I'm in no way, shape or form lazy, but the value it comes in is when I can press one button that says leave room that I've programmed and it'll turn off the lights, it'll shut off the TV when I'm walking out. That's kind of convenient and it's nice because then I know that I don't have to worry about later that I go back upstairs and I'm like, oh, I left the TV on all day. Why did I do that? Now I hit leave room. I know that the room is closed when I walk out. Or if I want to turn all the lights on in a specific room, let's say my kitchen, I can press all lights and they all turn on. I don't have to walk around to all the various light switches. I see those as probably the most valuable things in my house next to the blind controllers that opens the blinds in the morning. My wife loves to have the natural light come in in the morning, but I just walking around, turning the blinds again, it's, I look at it from convenience. That's probably number two on the list, I would say. Excellent. That is definitely insightful. I need to figure out an excuse to come visit your house to see everything that you've done at some point. You may or may not know, we like to end every episode by getting to know our guests a little more personally. And from what I understand, you're a big foodie. And I don't want to ask you a question about like, what's your favorite food or what's your favorite dish? Because that tends to be subjective and, and taste varies from people to people. I'm more interested in learning about your most memorable dining experience. Can you share your most memorable experience and, and why it was the most memorable experience? Sure. 
So I think my most memorable from a positive sense would be when we went to Minibar a few years ago, my wife, and it's a it's a Jose Andres restaurant that's down in DC. And so Jose Andres, he does a lot for a lot of charity, a lot for trying to feed and you know tackle hunger around the world. Phenomenal Spanish food. We got into his restaurants after my wife and I went to Spain, went to Barcelona for vacation. Just fell in love with the food, fell in love with tapas. So Haleo, great restaurant, but then he opened up Mini Bar, which was which is this really you know this, this high end Michelin star. I think it's even two Michelin star now restaurant. And what's fascinating about it is, and it's been a while since we've been there. I mean, I'd say a number of years. But what's fascinating is the fact that we have a picture on my phone. I have a picture of every course, and I think it must have been somewhere in the order of twenty plus courses and you know drink pairings and everything that they give you with it. And even till today, and it's, like I said, it's a number of years, I will still pull up and I'll show people those photos of that meal. Like, oh yeah, and then this was this. Oh, and then this was this. And then this was served in this way. And then this was a piece of popcorn that had some cayenne pepper in it, but it was frozen in nitrogen. So when you popped it in your mouth, you were supposed to breathe out your nose and it would blow smoke. And the reason we look at food like it's it's just the experience in a lot of cases when you're continuing when you can talk about it you know we're chatting about it right now and it's bringing back all those memories of every one of those various dishes that we had that's the thing that I love about these great restaurants and great chefs because it's almost like in some respects going to the amusement park you remember the rides oh wow this ride was awesome you remember the chef is putting on a show as well it's it's like going to see Hamilton in a lot of respects. You're getting this amazing experience. You're getting this awesome meal that they're showing their art. And we, like when you go back, we, we, we earlier chatted about the creativity. The stuff that these guys do with food blows my mind. Just when they reconstituted an olive, literally took an olive, pureed it down to the juice, and then reconstituted it in the shape of an olive. And it was just amazing. Like, why do that? Well, I guess from their perspective, why not, right? <laughs> so. Probably the most memorable experience I think I've had with food. That's awesome. I guess I didn't necessarily clarify that it had to be the most positive memorable experience or, or a negative one. You know, your story reminds me of, I have many memorable dining experiences, but I have one that was probably the most unique and it's not quite as elaborate as, as yours was. So mine was at this uh, noodle restaurant they have in Porter Square here in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I used to drive by this restaurant all the time. And every time I drove by, I would see a line out the door. And I never understood why, regardless of time of day, there was always a line out the door. So one day, my friend and I decided we were going to go check it out. We drove up, parked, walked up to the line, and we're waiting. We go in, and then we realize why it's so unique. So when you walk in, and no one there speaks English, it's all, you have to actually order in Japanese. Oh, wow. Now, on the wall, they have written down how to enunciate what you want to say and what the equivalent English translation is. But there's only one item on the menu. And the only options that you can say are, I want extra grease or extra meat. And and that was it. Those are the only options. It's a noodle that comes to you. And once you say that, then they tell you whether it's $10 or $12 based on your options and you pay them cash and they seat you where they want you to sit. My friend and I were not allowed to sit together because they get to choose where you sit. And then you're not allowed to use your phone while you're there. You're not allowed to talk to anyone while you're there. You sit down, they bring your meal to you and you eat as soon as you finish. 
you're expected to leave and the next person gets sat in, in your open spot. And if you finish the whole meal, then they all ring a bell and there's all cheers and celebration and, and what happens. And if you don't finish it, they don't want you sitting there and taking up the seat. So what, it's funny what they do is they keep coming to you and they just go, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you, and until you feel awkward and, and you want to leave. But that's one of my most memorable dining experiences that I've had, at least in Massachusetts. How was the food? Food was delicious, you know, and great. I think I could not finish the whole bowl. It was a little too heavy for me, but I was overly ambitious. I got the extra grease and extra meat options, Nice, but absolutely delicious and, and fantastic noodles. So there you go. Well, Kaz, thank you for your time and all your insight and letting us learn from you and your experiences. It's been a true pleasure. Hopefully I get to see you sometime soon. I'll, I'll definitely hit you up when I'm in, in Virginia next time. Definitely. Looking forward to it. And thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Take care. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.